Yo, welcome to the Educated Food Podcast. You are listening to Dr. Jeffrey Alexander Jr. This week, I decided to call on somebody to discuss what's going on in the Asian American Pacific Islander community here in America. See, I'm ignorant when it comes to a lot of things. I mean, we all are. It's impossible to know everything. And that's really one of the biggest reasons why I do this pod. So I can have discussions with people who know way more than me on topics that I just don't know a lot about. This is one of those topics. So sit back and relax as I talk to Gina about the AAPI community and the tragic uprising in violence against this community. All right. How's it going, Gina? Good. How you doing, Jeff? I'm, I'm doing well. One more day closer to Friday <laughs> um, where I get to sit in the house and do nothing because of COVID. But, you know, <laughs> um, I'm sure you're not doing just nothing. You've got a lot of projects going on, too. Yeah, um, I try to stay busy. You know, I try not to get bored. I think that's mm-hmm. one thing that I've, I learned, even though I was like a super homebody before COVID, um, being forced in the home is a little bit different than like being at your choice. So yes, picked up a lot of hobbies, uh, started a pod during COVID. So I picked up a, a lot of hobbies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of COVID, like what's been going on with you during this time? During this whole COVID time, uh, a lot of hobbies also. I have a new um, toy that I uh, purchased over the break and it took a, f- a few months to get here, but it's this half bike. I don't know if you saw it on my profile, but it's like a bike scooter thing. Like it's a standing bike. So it was quite a challenge. I had to practice. I'm still practicing on how to, how to ride that thing, but at least I could ride it without falling on my butt right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely saw it and I was intrigued. I wouldn't buy one because it does look like a workout. It is. It's tiring. <laughs> I just go around our little neighborhood and I'm already like sweating. So, <laughs> so I was like, that looks cool, but I won't get that. Uh, <laughs> I needed so. a challenge. I wanted something new. So why not? <laughs> right. It looks fun. Um, before we get too deep into the conversation, uh, would you tell the people about yourself a little bit? Sure. Um, so my name is Gina Lugong. I am a lecturer at Fresno State. I teach in our Department of Anthropology, but I am in no way an anthropologist. Uh, I was brought in for my uh, knowledge and expertise in the Asian American Studies field, and that's where Asian American Studies is a program housed in anthropology at Fresno State. So I teach a lot of Asian American Studies classes, but I've also been branching out, and now I teach diversity in the U.S. in our liberal studies program, which is the program that teaches, uh, that uh, educates future teachers. Um, I also teach critical thinking and California studies, so I've sort of branched out into other areas, but Asian American studies is really where my heart and my passion is, and so I'm originally from Los Angeles, uh, like you, and I moved up to Fresno in 2008 for personal reasons. I met somebody and we ended up getting married, and he lives here, so largely because of that, I have sort of had to reinvent myself in Fresno, and I've now become enmeshed in this world of education, in higher education, where I was not really before. My background is mostly in working in nonprofit communities, uh, mostly mostly in the Asian American communities, but also in other communities of color as well. And I was I'm always curious at like how people 
actually land where they are. So I was curious to know if, you know, education and teaching was like the original plan or not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. I was in, I, I went to grad school. I got my master's in public policy way back, way back in the day um, when I was very young. And one of my first jobs after coming out of grad school was working uh, in a nonprofit for, uh, it's called Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. And my job was to be a research associate associate on the public policy institute that they had, where we would do research and publish um, writings from various professors and experts around the country on issues, on public policy issues and how they impacted Asian Americans. And so that I think gave kind of my grounding in this world of academia through working with these professors. Uh, and so, yeah, it kind of paid off when I moved up here and I was able to make contact with some professors locally. And I sort of fell into teaching at that point. So, yeah, I was brought in to, to teach um, a couple of classes in Asian American studies here and there. And now it's sort of parlayed into, into a more fixed kind of career for me here. All right. Well, and. That's one of the reasons why I brought you on today. Uh, we definitely gonna talk about cooking because that's another reason why I brought you on. Um, but you know, with the current state of the world and mm. you know, Asian American Pacific Islanders are are finally starting to get um, attention on their experiences a little bit. Um, I really wanted to kind of have a conversation with someone who knew much more about it because I'm still very ignorant um, in a lot of ways as it relates to this. Uh, demographic. Um, and I remember we were in the same doctor program and um, I was focused on African-American men and the disappearing numbers of them in public schools, uh, colleges. And then you hit me with like, well, you know, Asian-American students is also dwindling. And that that was just complete shocker to me. Um, and, you know, talking about um, invisible minorities and things of that nature. So um, I want to bring you on so you can educate me a little bit more, educate the listeners a little bit more um, on the experience, um, kind of what's going on right now, um, just so those who haven't been engaged in these dialogues can just have a little bit of more insight. Thanks. Um, yeah. So um, I wanted to talk about invisible minority because it's something that, you know, is a term that gets thrown out there um, or because it was uh, an article or a book written about it. Um, but I don't think people truly know what that means. So if you can kind of explain a little bit of that. About the invisible minority thing. Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people that are in your shoes and it's no fault of your own that you don't know about Asian Americans or Asian American history, because frankly, that's not something that's ever taught in our American curriculum, especially K through 12. Hopefully now that will be changing with this whole, in California anyway, with the adoption of ethnic studies. But unfortunately, um, the histories of Asian Americans has has always been something that's either on the sidelines or on the margins or just left out entirely. And some of it has to do with the fact that our communities are a fairly small percentage of the total U.S. population. I think uh, nationally, Asian Americans are only maybe like 6% of the national population. But here in California, we're I think upwards of 15%, maybe even a little bit more now. So there's a lot more of a presence and awareness of things in California. Unfortunately, there's also a lot more instances of hate that we've seen where you know, over the last year, we've seen almost 4,000 institutes, uh, incidences of anti-Asian violence, and I think nearly half of those include in, uh, occurred in California. So there is a lot of um, 
education that needs to go on. And to your point about Asian Americans being the invisible minority, I think it's it's a it's a number of factors. One is that you know numerically we're small compared to a lot of other um, minority groups in the United States, but also because of the fact that our stories have not been uh, have not been told, and Asian Americans have not really been that vocal about sharing their stories until now. Now we're seeing some, but there's always been this sort of guiding principle or philosophy or cultural value, I think you might want to say, is um, where Asians are taught to, um, quote, eat their bitterness. And that means you just kind of swallow whatever bad stuff happens to you. You know, you just keep your nose down, keep grinding away, and hopefully, you know, people will recognize your accomplishments and somehow, you know, celebrate them. I think a lot of Asians and a lot of Asian immigrants kind of think this way when they first arrive and even maybe generations later, but it really hasn't done anything to raise the profile of Asian American contributions, which have been made over the last, you know, 100, 170 years, really, when the Asians first started coming here. And so we, we're seeing a lot of um, these stories starting to, to come out because people are feeling a need to speak out in response to the Atlanta shootings. Um, but the truth is that these stories have been happening for 170 years. We just have not really been paying attention. So these shootings are, you know, the sad, tragic kind of uh, next chapter in this long history of discrimination, racism, and violence that's been perpetrated against Asian Americans since the very beginning. Yeah, there's two things I want to touch on there. One is, that was literally a question of mine, right? It's we hear about this rise of violence against mm -hmm. this community. Um, and for me, I'm like, is it a rise or are we just now paying attention? Right. <laughs> yeah. um, because raised in, you know, South Central LA, Compton, California, Asians own a lot of our liquor stores in our markets. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen the treatment of those owners of those working behind the register. Mm -hmm. it's, it's been violence there um, from a host of people within the community and so I'm like, I don't think it's been a rise. I think we are just now paying attention mm. um, because, you know, Asian Americans are speaking up and, and letting their voices be heard. Mm -hmm. um, this generation isn't really willing to sit back anymore. Yeah. Um, and just just let that happen. So that was one thing. Um, but the second is, is something you touched on that my wife brought up the other day because she's also in higher ed. She's an academic advisor. And their Asian American students are really struggling in this uh, online for, format but they're not, they're not reaching out for help. And she mm -hmm. was wondering, like, is it a cultural thing for why they're not reaching out for help? And you kind of spoke to that. It's, mm -hmm. you know, put your head down, work harder, and eventually you'll break through. Is, mm -hmm. is that kind of what you've seen in your, in your realm of working with students? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely something that is a, I think maybe it's a Confucian value. A lot of Chinese people embrace this, and a lot of, of course, Chinese-influenced other Asian cultures. And so there's a lot of this sense of shame if you were to ask for help, if you were to admit that you're not doing well or that you need help or God forbid, some sort of psychological or mental health, because that is another big area that Asians are very hesitant to reach out and admit that they need help. And I think that definitely has its roots in, in cultural values. It also has a lot of its roots in the model minority myth, which is something that um, maybe uh, you've probably heard. But it's basically this idea that Asians are somehow these super achieving, super smart, you know, high income individuals. 
Uh, but really that term was was created as a kind of to drive a wedge between Asian Americans and other racial minorities. It came about in the 60s at the height of the civil rights movement and it was used by the white dominant supremacy um, system in order to sh say, you know, these Asians are doing so well, why can't you other, you know, black, Latino, whatever, other minorities do the same. And it's something that I think is very divisive. It's very dangerous. And unfortunately, a lot of people have bought into this myth and it's still widely believed today, even by a lot of Asians who don't really understand the roots of where this came from and why it's why it's dangerous. So I think a lot of students that we see on campus kind of internalize all of that. They internalize the shame, they internalize the trauma of maybe past experiences and this whole idea that they can't live up to this un unrealistic um, stereotype of being the model minority. And so that all kind of combines to having to what you see is where Asian American students are are hesitant to speak out and they don't feel confident in themselves and they don't feel like they their pleas for help will be heard really. Um, as I as I said earlier like I'm, I'm slowly learning and and paying more attention to, to the population so model minority didn't come across my knowledge until maybe only five years ago mm -hmm. um, where at Cal Poly where I used to work, we did these men of color dialogues. Mm -hmm. And one of the students brought to us this PBS special, um, Pass or Fail in Cambodia Town. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it breaks down what model minority is because this, this, this Asian population, this group in Long Beach gets ignored. They have the mm -hmm. lowest like high school graduation rates, yep. right? But because they're Asian, no one pays attention to the fact that they're not graduating high school because the minor minority, they'll, they'll always tout like the percentage of Asian Americans who get college degrees versus everybody else, right? Yep. So that was like the first time I heard of model minority and started paying somewhat, some attention to all of these other layers mm -hmm. to the experience of Asian American students that I just ignorantly, like just ignored, right? I fell into the stereotypes like all Asian students are smart. Right. A lot of a lot of people do it. And I, like I said, a lot of Asian people themselves fall into that, mm -hmm. to believing that, too, in believing they're somehow more special than others for whatever reason. But a lot. And that also has to do with the, the vast diversity of the Asian American population of what we call Asian Americans in this country, which could run the gamut from people who are fifth, sixth, seventh generation Americans to people who have just arrived, you know, in the last five years or their parents came as refugees from wars in Southeast Asia, from Cambodia, Vietnam or Laos. And so at Fresno, we have a lot of Southeast Asian students. We have a very high Hmong population, but there are also Cambodians and Laotians as well. And that the, the diversity that we have on our campus and the fact that our students are not doing well, like what you said earlier, how I, I shared with you that our Asian American students at Fresno State are, are dropping out at higher rates than any other racial group. Um, but that all gets ignored because the data that we see just throws all Asians into one big pot. And so this is what I did my dissertation on where I broke down who are these Asians in this in our student population. And you can see that there are clear distinctions between the achievements of say East Asians and South Asians versus Southeast Asians and Pacific Islanders. I didn't study Pacific Islanders because we didn't have enough, but I know that historically and 
from other evidence that they also are struggling as well in education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I learned that just in high school, where we didn't even see, once again, we didn't see Pacific Islanders, so we think yeah. of Samoans and Tongans as Asians. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, the only re and the only reason we see them as Asians now are because the government said that they were they were thrown in there, and but they were yeah. also then taken out later. Yeah, so it right, doesn't so. make sense, really, to, to look at everybody at this, as this one homogenous group when we, there are so many different, so many differences and disparities among us. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, I want to get to, I won't call it the rise in the hate against um, AAPI because um, I think we both can agree there isn't a rise. It's just a rise in. No, I, actually, I think there is a rise, actually. Oh, okay. So what you were saying earlier about how is there a rise or are we just now paying attention? I think it's actually both. Okay. Because I do think that because of Trump and the way that he framed everything is and basically used Asian Americans as a scapegoat by calling it the China virus or the Wuhan flu or the Kung flu, even worse, um, really focused attention on Asian Americans as being somehow responsible for this pandemic that we're now a year into. Right. And I think Asian Americans, when he first started saying this over a year ago, started say, you know denouncing uh, the fact that he's using this kind of rhetoric, this very damaging racist rhetoric, um, and because we could see what's going to come out of it. You know, somebody who spoke out early on um, at my daughter's school when some kid called another boy coronavirus. Um, and so that was something because I could see that on a spectrum of, of disrespect and uh, culminating in hate, that th that's how it starts. Kids just taunting other kids on a playground. Maybe then it goes to some idiot yelling out of his window at, at somebody walking by or somebody shoving somebody at, at the store. And then next thing you know, we have this tragedy like Atlanta on our hands. So I do think that the there is a rise. There's been a report actually by Stop AAPI Hate that has documented nearly 4,000 hate incidences. So I think the number of or the frequency of, of, of hate incidences has jumped like 150%. Um, in the last year. So there definitely is a rise in that. Uh, but the, uh, uh, to your other point, I think people definitely are paying attention now, especially because of the Atlanta shootings, uh, but also because Asians are more, Asian Americans are using their voice more and speaking out in ways that they hadn't before. And this also has to do with, you know, social media, things like podcasting or Facebook or Twitter that there's there's a, a, a forum, there's a way that you can get your voice heard by a lot of people that simply wasn't around in the 80s or 90s before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I agree with that um, with um, our, our former president and his rhetoric um, definitely fueled and, and gave a lot of um, hatred power. Mm -hmm. um, to, to be out in the open, right? Because it's like, you know, if my president is not getting in trouble for this, yeah, exactly. why would I? Um, he, he basically normalized it and made it okay for all these racist people to come out of the woodwork and start spewing whatever it is they felt like saying because they didn't feel like there was going to be any repercussions. And, and really, there haven't been repercussions. Yeah, like even the people on the Capitol, right? They're, they, they're exactly. Getting, like, they're, they're getting paroled out. I'm like, yo, seriously? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's just they're they're uh, the dis social like the dissonance of just what they actually did versus you know a crime is crazy. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I wanted to discuss because we talk about the Atlanta uh, the Atlanta murders and you know it was violence against women. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think I was reading somewhere where the violence is more uh, more women are falling victims to these to these violent crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to kind of discuss on kind of the history of that, because I know the media um, often, you know, exoticizes or fetishizes um, Asian American women. Do you think that plays a, a big role into the crimes that, that that is being committed against them? Yeah, definitely. It plays a huge role. And it also plays a huge role in the police spokesperson guy um, saying that these crimes were not hate crimes, that he was just acting out, you know, uh, whatever. What did he say? Like sexual addiction or something. A sexual addiction. And he saw them as these objects of temptation that he needed to eliminate. That's BS, right? (laughs) Or maybe that that could be a way of looking at it or a way of framing it. But the truth is, this guy clearly saw these Asian women as sex objects or as objects of, of his desire and went out specifically to target them and shoot them and kill them. And a lot of that does have its roots in these sexualized fantasies or fetishizations of Asian women, Asian American women. Um that have been portrayed historically in in media as geisha girls or china dolls or dragon ladies or what have you or by two live crew as uh, me love you long time prostitutes right we can face all of these things and understand that that's really shaped people's understanding of who Asian American women are and how they expect them to behave. I mean, even in my own history, I went to uh, Duke in North Carolina for grad school. And I can't tell you how many times I got complimented on my English or that I was the beautiful China girl or whatever. You know, there's all kinds of things that you can point to it that every Asian American woman pretty much, I would say, has experience, direct experience with and can talk about. And so these, all these images, you know, are in the public psyche. And I think we need to all recognize that these stereotypes have played into a lot of these men's ideas about uh, Asian American women and that we're dispensable, that we're there just to please them, uh, and that there's not going to be a repercussion for choosing to eliminate this temptation, as the guy said, which is what is really maddening about this whole story, and that what, and that's what co- what's causing a lot of different voices to be coming out now, voices from you know, people that we don't normally hear from, like Connie Chung. She's a she's a trailblazing Asian American journalist. And for her to come out, which she did recently, to talk about this is pretty major. So it, it always amazes me the mental gymnastics uh <laughs> white media do to to not call a white racist a, a terrorist, right? Exactly. Who, who is who is seeking out people that they just don't f- believe should walk the earth or share the same air as them. And exactly. just the mental gymnastics, like uh, <laughs> sexual addiction, is the cause to mm-hmm. to yeah. And we see out, this time and time again. You you should know. Black Lives Matter has been talking about this for ages, and, and now we're seeing. You know, now it's our turn, unfortunately, but it seems like it just goes in waves. You know, first there was the Black Lives Matter, then you have anti-Muslims with the whole ban, then you had immigrants at the wall. So it's just one group after another. And every time something happens, white, the powers that be in our white supremacist society will 
try to go through these contortions to say, oh, no, that's not who we are. Mm -hmm. Our hopes and prayers are going out or what have you. But you know that if that shooter were Black, were a Muslim, were something, he would immediately, he probably wouldn't even be alive to talk about it for one. Um, or he'd be branded a terrorist or what have you. Know, what have, <laughs> yeah. Don't even get started on that. Right. Like we definitely don't get the the privilege to be handcuffed and, and see our day in court. Yeah. Um, and we're not killing anyone. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let alone us murdering eight people or, or like the guy in Colorado, mm-hmm. you know, just walking into a shopping center and just shooting people and you can walk out perfectly fine. It's. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly mad, mad, maddening. It's maddening. Exactly. That's the word that I was thinking of when you were talking. Yeah. It's just maddening. It's just maddening. Like, you're like, seriously, come on. Yeah. Um, and so we've, unfortunately, due to the rise in, you know, camera phones and social media, we see a lot of these images of hate, um, particularly like the George Floyds of the world where their, their murder is filmed. Mm. Uh, for me personally, I don't watch any of those. Like, that's... No. I just I, I can't do it like I can't either yeah it just hurts too much yeah it just hurts too much um with um with all the things going on how do you kind of you know practice safe self-care because you are you are very vocal uh, you're very actively engaged in the community um speaking up and speaking out um what are some things that you do to um stay sane through all this craziness um but also are there any tips you can give people on how to educate themselves a little bit better and and learn more well i mean i really applaud you for doing this podcast in the first place i mean you do this on your own on your own time on your own dime and you're committed to get you know having people's voices heard on different subjects so that's great um for me personally i mean i think I spend obviously a lot of time on Facebook and and I take out my anger by posting and reposting stories and things like that. But I really try to, well, I mean, I do try to take a mental break and and I do have dogs, so I have to go walk the dogs every day. So that kind of helps when I feel myself getting so mad. I'm like, okay, I need to just go outside and go outside, walk the dogs. I tried my half bike, like I told you at the beginning where I was, I bought this new toy and I'm trying to learn how to, so it's a new skill that I need to practice every day so that I'll get better at it. Um, I also do hula. That's a really grounding and um, fulfilling practice. And it's really nice to be able to focus on something that's kind of positive and uplifting and peaceful <laughs> in during these times. And then, you know, like we joke about online, I, I do a lot of cooking. <laughs> so that also helps because everybody needs to eat. I, I like to try new recipes. I'm always looking for new things to make and and uh, test out on my family. So those are some of the things that I do. I want to jump into cooking a little bit. (laughs) Um, Because the dishes you cook are, for me to try, will be very ambitious at times. Um, (laughs) They look really difficult. Um, But (laughs) there's a a question I ask everybody who who loves to cook. because, you know, my family sees me and they know I try and attempt all these things. So they always want me to try these new dishes out, which more times than not turn out pretty good. But I like to know from people who cook, what is that one dish that's super easy to everybody else, but you can't seem to get that? Oh, that I cannot do? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Because I have one that is super easy and it frustrates me every time I mess it up. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to the point where I don't even try anymore. I cheat when I, when I cook it now. 
Well, you know, my kids would tell you that uh, every time I try to reheat pizza, I always manage to burn it. So, <laughs> so maybe that's it because I get impatient or I, I, I walk away because I, I'm so distracted. And then I forget that it's on. The, I don't like to do it in the microwave because the crust gets too soft and gross. So I always do it on a pan, covered it on the stovetop. And I usually turn it low, but sometimes I'll forget. So that might be, <laughs> I can't yeah. reheat pizza. <laughs> <laughs> put it in a toaster oven and put it on broil because you don't want to wait and then you walk away come back it's completely and it's black <laughs> it's just done you're like why how can i mess this up yeah. <laughs> now the so the one dish for me that is hit or miss and now i have to use a rice cooker because i can't cook rice <laughs> well, i always use a rice cooker i don't ever so, try to not do it like, so it's just a rice cooker now like I just can't seem to get it done correctly without a rice cooker. <laughs> rice cooker is the best invention ever, though. <laughs> it is. Like, once I once I got a rice cooker, I'm like, why was I even trying to cook rice without this thing? Exactly. Like, it's so much easier. What, this is what it's made for. I could just set it, walk away. Yeah. And you could, if you have a fancy one, you could set the timer even so you could do it, you know, like the <laughs> night before. <laughs> yeah. what's, what's your favorite thing to cook? Or if you have oh. a signature dish, what would that be? My husband's favorite thing that I make is also one of the easiest things ever. I was going to tell you how to make it. But have you ever been to a Chinese restaurant and you get that white boiled chicken? It's like a steamed chicken with ginger and scallion sauce. That's the easiest thing ever to make. So I, I make that a lot. Whenever I have a whole chicken, I do that. And he's very happy. All you need is that rice and maybe like some kind of vegetable and you got a complete meal. And then you can make soup with the broth once you're done with the chicken. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's typically what I what I'll do. Like my wife loves broth and I, I I'm not a fan of it. I'm not a fan of soups. Let me be oh. honest. Well, let me rephrase. I'm not a fan of I'm not a fan of soups as a meal. Yeah. Right. Um, and my wife, she's perfectly fine when I'm like, no, this is an appetizer. Like, <laughs> when you go to a restaurant and you order it's super salad before like yes. you didn't order soup as your meal so well i told you right before we sat down to talk i had some soup that i thought was going to be my lunch but i was still hungry so i had yeah. that cereal after that it's so not enough no it's not i agree it's not if it's a stew or something maybe but just soup no it's just going to leave me upset and hungrier later so. didn't we, we had this discussion didn't we i said it only qualifies as a meal if it has some sort of meat and like veg vegetable yeah. and noodle or some kind of starch in it yeah, I posted it on Facebook. That's that's how I settle all my me and my wife debates. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I need I need people to help me on Facebook to agree with me to, to win an argument in my house. Uh, so yeah, I definitely posted this. It's super meal or appetizer. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> she was trying to feed me chicken broth for dinner one night. I'm like, this no, 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 no. Do you see me? <laughs> I'm not skinny at all. I'm trying to get there, but I'm not there yet. So yeah, I can never be. I, I just want to eat too many things. I, I always want to try too many different things. That's the hard part, being a foodie yeah. and then being someone who really, truly enjoys cooking, because that's a stress mm -hmm. reliever for me. Um, it's really difficult because I'll mm -hmm. see something online. I'm like, yo, I'm about to try this. <laughs> like, I'm going to try this. Um, <laughs> And so it, it doesn't help. And then it doesn't help when people come over and they want you to cook things that they saw. They're like, oh, I saw this. I wanted you to cook it, right? I'm like, 
So it makes it really difficult. But I totally agree. That's actually, that's something else that, that I started doing to help get through this pandemic was I started a cooking group. And so I would get on my Zoom and, and open it up for anybody who wanted to join. And so we started cooking together. And so through that cooking Zoom, I ended up doing it from March to like December of last year. Mm -hmm. um, and I had a very solid core group of, of friends and family who would sign on from all over the country and we would all cook together. So we ended up making, I think, more than 75 different recipes. Yeah, <laughs> because people would always comment and they'd say, oh, that looks good. How do you make it? So I'm like, well, get on Zoom and I'll show you and let's do it. Yeah, right. And that, and that was the cool part because I joined the group. Um, <laughs> I was like, this looks fun, right? And, it, and it's dishes that, you know, I don't, I wouldn't typically think of ever mm -hmm. making on my own. Um, but they were all, they were, I mean, you might think they're hard, but they really weren't because everything that I did you mostly could be done in under an hour because mm -hmm. the Zoom was pretty much an hour. So from start to finish, you were an hour and you're, you'd be done. Yeah. And that's what I try to tell people as well. Even hard dishes is really the prep that makes, yeah. that takes up all your time. Yeah. Cooking it isn't really all that difficult. It's the patience and the prep. Um, there's one cook um, that I watch on like Tasty or whatever, or Taste, mm -hmm. I can't really remember their website. And he'll cook his dish, it will take him like three hours and it's just all this prepping and steaming forever. I'm like, I'm too hungry for that. <laughs> yeah, ain't nobody got time for that. I don't have time for that, no. That's hungry. why I, I like, I'm all about the Instant Pot, the air fryer, things that I can do and throw together in an hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Instant Pot was a great purchase over during COVID. Yeah. Just, uh, it's so, um, I do want to thank you though for um, joining me today, um, taking some time out of, you know, our busy schedules and to sit down to, um, help out what I call myself the educated fool because there's a lot of us out there um, <laughs> where you know just because yes I'm technically Dr. Jeffrey Alexander there's still so much that I that I try to learn and grow every day and um, just watching um, watching these stories develop and, and not really having a firm understanding of what's truly going on with the community um, I, I really want to thank you for taking your time out to speak to me. No, I really thank you for inviting me. I really love this whole medium of this podcast as, you know, now, now you're inspiring me to want to start my own so I could talk about whatever it is I want to talk about for an hour. We'll probably talk a lot about cooking on mine. <laughs> but I really think it's a useful outlet and it's a great medium to reach a lot of different people and to to make different voices heard that typically aren't heard. And so since I was talking a lot about how we need to hear more Asian American voices, I really want to do my part to help elevate um, those voices. So I uh, thank you for inspiring me by having this podcast and inviting me to be part of it. Oh, anytime. And then when you get yours going, I'll return the favor. Yes, I would love to have you on mine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great. Uh, have a great day. Okay. Thank you.